This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. All right, Docs in the Box podcast. Today we have uh, Dr. Michael Emery joining us. He is a cardiologist who was formerly at IU, now at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, He's been doing CrossFit for a long time. Uh, Amy and I met him back in, I think it was... 2016 or 17. Um, and he was at the first MDL one out in Aromas, California with us. Welcome, Michael. Great. Thanks for having me. Hey, so there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the cardiology world right now. And I know you've done a lot of talking about rhabdo. And one thing I wanted to kind of ask you here as we get started is, um, you know, with people coming out of quarantine and going back to the gym, is there a reason people should be uh, being particularly careful if they're jumping back into CrossFit workouts right now? Yeah, I think they should. I mean, you guys know this uh, as well too, but you know, rhabdo is predominantly precipitated by doing volume you're not used to doing. Uh, and if people have been completely sedentary from quarantine, then they're starting from scratch and they got to, as we always say, check their ego at the, the front door. Um, but it's also, I think, imperative that uh, CrossFit the coaches and the programmers who are programming for their particular gym also realize that, too, to not get their uh, members and athletes in trouble. Yeah, Amy, you uh, just came back to the gym for the first time today, right? Unfortunately, yes. This is the first time I've been inside a gym since the quarantine began. What workout did you do? Well, they've been doing sort of more strength-based. They're still having a split schedule here in New York. All the regulations are keeping the, basically keeping the gyms closed until today. But um, so they're doing a splitting schedule, half outside, which is more Metcon style, and the inside stuff is more like lifting and, um, you know, kind of slower-paced stuff. So I did a pull-up for the first time since, pretty much since Murph today. Um, and I'm feeling that. Um, but any, for Mike, any recommendations as far as um, how people can regulate themselves if, if when they're getting back into, into exercising? Yeah, I think it goes to the, what I said earlier is you got to check your ego. You got to realize that volume is the key here. Strength training is probably a good way to ease yourself back in rather than the, the higher intensity, higher volume training going in and trying to do Murph after not doing any kind of volume for a while is going to be pretty tough on you, um, both cardiovascular fitness wise, but also with the chance of increased risk of rhabdo. Um, I think that's where a lot of people are going to get themselves potentially into trouble. Um, you know, here, here in Cleveland, um, you know, the gyms have been open for a while. So the gym I joined here, CrossFit CLE, um, and Phil, our, our head coach and co-owner has done a really good job of easing people back in. Um, and then they've been really good about the whole quarantine and, and mask wearing and cleaning. And, uh, it's been actually quite impressive what they've done. Yeah. I think like a lot of the people are at least, you know, I'd hope that were the real go-hards were at least doing some form of fitness during quarantine. So they weren't just jumping back and trying to do Murph, but a lot of places, you know, the gym started to open back up right around Murph time. So that was definitely a concern that was out there. Yeah, I have not done Murph this year, unfortunately, because of it all. Other than the modified vert Murph in my driveway, 
on Memorial Day, which wasn't quite the same. It's it's the pull-up bar that's like hard to find for people, right? Uh, it'd be nice to yeah. have one mounted here, but well, um, as far as uh, so I so as a team physician, I'm dealing. We're dealing a lot now with return to play, and especially for people who've, who've tested positive for COVID or who have had who have positive antibodies. And then the question becomes cardiovascular screening and, and what's necessary to clear them to return to play, especially if they're asymptomatic. Um, the general consensus that I'm getting is that they're going to do EKGs on everybody um, any, or anyone who's tested positive before letting them return to play. But what are your thoughts on that as someone who is a sports cardiologist who has not, there aren't so many have, of you, so. <laughs> right. And I, and I have lots of thoughts on that. Um, the discussion about COVID and the risk of cardiovascular implications, myocarditis, return to play, sudden cardiac death in athletes must occupy parts of every single day of my day right now. Um, whether that's talking about it with people like you, talking to athletes, talking to schools, talking to conferences, you know, this has been a growing level of concern and an and a increased level of our conscious thought more so than at any other time uh, in sports cardiology history or return to play an athlete. And it's really in some regards been a good discussion to have. And in some regards, it's kind of exposed the, the screening mentality and the, the, the problems with screening in, in athletes in general. Oh, and when, and I helped write the uh, return to play guidelines that were endorsed by the American college of cardiology and published in JAMA cardiology back in, in March, or excuse me, back in May. At that time, we had zero data other than hospitalized patients. Uh, and our concern was that the cardiovascular involvement of COVID that we saw in hospitalized patients seemed to be at a much higher incidence of cardiac involvement than we would see in other viruses like the flu. Now, we've not extensively studied the flu even, but what we're seeing seemed to be higher. So we urged a significant level of caution. At the time, we did not recommend any cardiovascular screening in someone who is asymptomatic. Thinking about the setting, you're going back to school or your professional league and they're gonna screen everybody for COVID. So we anticipated there being a significant number of athletes who had a positive screen who truly had no symptoms. So at the time we recommended no screening, do your standard quarantine, we typically recommended no exercise while, while you're in quarantine, thinking there, because there is some animal data suggesting that in the setting of a viral infection that you do increase your risk of myocarditis if you exercise heavily in the setting of an active viral infection. For those that are mildly symptomatic and above, we recommend some form of screening. Part of that depended upon resources, right? Because any screening program, you have to have the resources to do it well and to also handle the downstream testing of that. Uh, since then, it's sort of taken on a life of its own, and it really started to become more of a social media discussion, if you will, because Twitter exploded when the studies started coming out about some asymptomatic but older patients with comorbidities having abnormal cardiac MRIs. And then a study was published out of Ohio State in athletes showing some abnormalities may be a strong word, some curious findings. Um, that they attributed to myocarditis, despite them having no symptoms of myocarditis. So there's been a huge turnover here. And, you know, 
what people are concerned about um, and what particularly a lot of leagues are doing. For instance, the Big Ten is going to do cardiac MRIs on every single athlete, whether, they're po- whether they have symptoms or not. They are doing it in the form of a registry. So hopefully there's some good data that will come out of it. Um, but from a pure sports standpoint, I think that, you know, new published, excuse me, they're not published yet. They're under review. But I anticipate us saying, because they're not published yet, that if you're asymptomatic, we still don't recommend screening. Um, only testing them for cardiac concerns or other concerns if once they return to play, they start having problems with fatigue, excessive shortness of breath, chest pain, or something along those lines. So the random screen is going to be fraught with problems because interpreting ECGs and echoes in in young athletes is not as straightforward as we all want to think it is. Um, And I'm dealing with that now. Most of the things that I have to deal with in young athletes that have been screened are because of not understanding the athletic remodeling or not having good quality control in an echo lab. Yeah, that's always um, a concern because I, uh, before COVID was, you know, the, the cardiac screening that's done on athletes prior to participation, certainly at the collegiate level and the high school level. And there are, you know, parents and people pushing for EKGs on everyone. Um, but we, we've talked about it before that you have to be able be able to understand the nuances of those of those EKGs. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself working up a bunch of things that are essentially normal or you know non not relevant. Really. Yeah. So, when you look at just speaking about ECG screening in general, when you look at the um, 2010 European Society uh, guidelines for interpreting an athlete's ECG, at the time they thought they understood athletic remodeling, but even in the criteria that they thought they had for athletes, there was a 40% false positive rate. And that was geared towards young athletes. If you were to go and use a standard ECG machine or interpretation criteria we would use in a 55-year-old male who smokes and never gets off the couch, that false positive rate is going to be higher because the the interpretation that it kicks out for sinus bradycardia, first-degree AV block, even left ventricular ventricular hypertrophy by voltage criteria, we consider those normal findings in athletes but they're going to get sent and they're going to go downstream testing and you're going to dig down this rabbit hole or as, as a, a, a good mentor of mine, Paul Thompson in Connecticut calls it diagnostic creep. And you can diagnostic creep all the way along with a little abnormality here that you don't understand. That's probably just an athletic remodeling. And then you get the next test and it's not quite normal by standard definition, but probably normal for an athlete. And you can just creep along before you know, you're, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, uh, in the hole of an of investment and in testing that could have been stopped way up front if you had known what was going on in terms of interpreting that test, um, but also just the angst and anxiety that you put that family through because, you know, to get that much testing isn't going to happen in a day. It's going to take weeks to months, and now you've kept an athlete out of participating for weeks to months because ultimately you didn't understand what you were doing in the first place. So to unleash that kind of screening on the masses is, is why, you know, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association has not recommended mass universal mandatory screening because the resources just aren't there. And the people to interpret those and handle those findings just isn't there. Um, and we may be doing more harm than good. Now, in the setting of someone who knows what they're doing, it's probably still a valuable tool. A valuable tool. And when you actually read in, deeper into the ACC AHA guidelines, 
it says, you know, we don't recommend mass universal mandatory screening. But then you go to the next paragraph and it says, but there is probably room for small, well-run programs who, with people who understand the limitations. So the AHA doesn't say not to screen. They say don't make it mandatory and universal. But if you're going to screen, make sure you know what you're doing. And what would qualify? I mean, there aren't many sports cardiologists in the world, really. Um, so how is it when you say like someone who qualifies as like an understanding that you mean someone who essentially has your level of training or are, are there cardiologists in, cardiolo cardiologists in general uh, able to, you know, do they get training in kind of this, these nuances or what? Yeah, there are the capabilities to get trained in these nuances and it's mostly self-taught and we understand that. So, you know, the, the most current iteration of interpreting an athlete's ECG is the international criteria, they're called. Um, they're pretty straightforward. And there is an online learning module that any cardiologist or even a primary care sports medicine physician who's interested in understanding these can, can learn to some of these nuances. Part of the problem is, you know, just the way we do ECGs in general, you know, and me as a cardiologist, when an EKG gets presented to me, that computer interpretation at the top, I, I'd like ignore it. And I interpret the EKG. But the reality is that that computer interpretation is a nice, comfy, did I do it right check for a lot of physicians. And when that starts coming back normal, then, then or it says abnormal, even though I, as a cardiologist and a sports cardiologist, can overread that, a lot of other physicians are going to get a little anxious contradicting a, 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 an echo machine or an ECG machine. There is, a, there is a system in place, which is you can find if you Google it, that is um, designed for athletes. Um, it's a 12-lead ECG machine that, that Bluetooths to a laptop, and in it is built into the international criteria that helps to take some of that angst out of it for other physicians. That's wild. Um, I just, you know, I'm thinking back and being in Wisconsin, in rural Wisconsin, I mean, they're like actively playing sports right now, you know, football season and in Michigan too. And thinking about, I mean, the lack of specialty care that we have here, even with having a primary care sports medicine physician seems kind of ridiculous in a lot of these places. And to be able to screen these athletes and then have somebody interpreting that, like you were saying, there's just not the resources there to even do it. So on one scale, it's pretty unrealistic from that standpoint as well. Um, but I mean, you know, sports cardiology is something that I think you've been, you know, one of the big pioneers in and understanding, you know, um, cardiac events and athletes and the risk when playing sport. Um, so we definitely appreciate your opinion on all this. So what, you know, this big study everybody's talking about with myocarditis that you mentioned, um, what are some issues with that? And do you think um, we should put any stake in it really? So this was um, data on 26 athletes, uh, all from Ohio State University. They all got cardiac MRIs, regardless of symptoms, but they're all COVID positive. Um, they'd all gone through their quarantine. Four of those 26 athletes met Lake Lu modified or updated Lake Louise criteria for myocardial inflammation. And I use that phrase myocardial inflammation on purpose because that's what the guidelines or the Lake Louise criteria actually say. They don't say myocarditis. 
But the thing we have to remember is that those Lake Louise criteria, which are criteria specific for cardiac MRI, were developed on patients that had a high pretest probability of myocarditis. So what we sort of lost in all this is classic Bayes' theorem, right? Your pretest probability, how good the test is, determines your post-test probability. If your pretest probability is low, then oftentimes it doesn't matter what the test says. It doesn't make your post-test probability high or diagnostic. And that's what we're seeing here. We see some curious findings, but within that study, there's no control group. Pretest probability was low. We don't have pre and post. We don't know what this really means, if anything. So I have a little bit of a problem calling it myocarditis um, because it doesn't start to meet some of the other ancillary criteria for it. Uh, and without a control group, it's sort of one of these, well, that's interesting. Maybe we should study this more systematically. That, in my opinion, should be the extent of what you take from that study. And remember, it wasn't a full manuscript. It was a research letter. Right. And that's what Amy and I were talking about before you came on here, wanting to talk about this, because it's literally all the hype everywhere that you look. I was just reading, you know, what you were talking about the guidelines, people reviewing the guidelines of screening and really taking a look at everything because of this new study, you know? And so it's like, okay, pump the brakes for a second and let's get somebody that knows what they're talking about and get their opinion of it so we can stop freaking out. Yeah, we will continue to not recommend screening MRI. Um, period. I mean, do you have any recommendations for someone who had COVID and who wants to get back into the gym, who's not, you know, who's not on a team, who's not a high level athlete, do they need to have any testing before that if they are now feeling okay? Or do they, should it be only something if they become symptomatic with exercise? Like what, what's your... So I would recommend testing or reviewing the case of any um, person who was hospitalized with COVID, because um, that seems to be where the predilection for cardiac involvement is most pronounced. Um, whether they had such severe comorbidities that put them in the hospital with COVID, or that just the disease process in them was so bad. So that's one I would probably recommend some form of more formal evaluation before they take up an exercise program. If you were not hospitalized and you're sort of a, just a recreational athlete, unless you had concerning cardiac symptoms to begin with, symptoms that would be concerning for pericarditis or myocarditis, um, or you've completed your quarantine, you're feeling fine, but you go back or try to start exercise and you're having difficulties with that beyond just what it may be fitness related, then that probably warrants some kind of an evaluation. What that is probably should be based on um, local resources and what kind of symptom set pushes you one way or the other. It, it may not be myocarditis you're looking for. It may be, you know, uh, pulmonary involvement because of bad uh, pulmonary involvement from the disease state itself. Now that could be in pulmonary function tests and not a cardiac MRI. Could be a cardiac MRI depending upon your pretest probability and, and what else you're seeing or can't find. Could be a cardiopulmonary exercise test. Um, if you don't think myocarditis is at role, but you want to see if there's some sort of cardiac involvement. So I don't think recreational athletes need a specific guideline or a specific set of evaluations beyond what you would be clinically suspicious for based upon symptoms, the time of disease, any symptoms as they return to play, or if you were hospitalized. 
the concern with, with athletes, and I'll address that here briefly too, is that when we look at observational data and, and registries of sudden cardiac death in athletes, one, we have to realize that they're registries and, and not mandatory registries. They're often media-guided registries. But it appears that about 8 to 10% of sudden cardiac death in young athletes was from myocarditis, whether that's acute myocarditis that they've blown off or the long-term sequelae of myocarditis, meaning they have residual LV dysfunction or residual reduce, reduction in their left ventricular ejection fraction, or they develop scarring, myocardial scar on the long term. So on that topic, um, that's very interesting. We have an AED at our gym here. Um, have you seen a lot of CrossFit gyms um, having AEDs? I know there's kind of a barrier with cost. And what are your thoughts on, on gyms having those? And if they don't, um, of them obtaining one? Yes, every gym should have an AED, period. Um, there should be no question about that. We can talk all we want about the controversy of screening um, and whether it saves lives or not, because that is still controversial. There is no controversy that an AED saves a life. Um, so that's it, unrefutable, I think. And every gym should have an AED. It, cost can be a barrier. You know, some states it's mandatory. If you're a, a recreational facility, you're, you know, the law mandates that you have to have an AED, so you got to figure out a way to do it. But there are ways to get grants to get AEDs from the AHA or other organizations. A lot of local hospitals will supply low-cost AEDs um, to people who ask for them. You can also, you know, you don't have to get the shiny bells and whistle one. You know, they, they're, they're maybe a little easier to operate. But if you know what you're doing, the refurbished AED that you can get from, uh, I think it's AED.us. Um, for four or five hundred dollars, will do the job it needs to do. Get an AED. Have a fundraiser. Agreed, and I think a fundraiser is a great option. Before they were just having me run around and do a precordial thump for all the people that were down. <laughs> Well, with those guns, it's probably pretty effective. <laughs> but yeah, it's great. And you know what? I see gyms, honestly, that don't have them. And that's always the talk is the cost. And I think you have to find a way to make it work. Because like you're saying, it's probably the most valuable thing you can have at your gym. Yeah. And, you know, as a healthcare provider, you got to make sure that maintenance of the AED is there as well. You know, the batteries don't last for forever, so they have to be replaced. Now, they usually last several years. The pads also have to be replaced every year or two as well. So if you're going to come up with a budget, it's not only the budget for getting the AD to begin with, but the long-term maintenance of it. And that leads us to the, so the, there's been some controversy as far as uh high intensity exercise for people who are either um maybe people who have not exercised much in the past taking up a, a high intensity exercise program and the potential risks of that and and at the last sports conference i was at they pointed to the the increase in cardiac events with with snow and, and people going out shoveling you know, for the first time, that's the first time they're active in months and, you know, they're generally out of shape guys who start shoveling and then have massive MI. Um, and they sort of use that as a parallel of like, this is why high intensity exercise is dangerous for, for people in that category. But what, what are your thoughts about that? And as far as like how to get into that kind of exercise, if you are someone who's not necessarily um, 
So I, I will say that if you have underlying cardiovascular disease, there is a slightly higher risk of sudden cardiac arrest with high intensity than with moderate intensity. And that has to do with catecholamine surges and things like that. It doesn't necessarily make them dangerous if you choose the right person or you choose the right program. The thing with going out and shoveling snow is that, you know, someone is completely sedentary and that's a pretty high intensity activity for a period of time. In addition, when they're cold and they shunt blood from the periphery to the central vasculature, there's also a volume load on the heart. So that volume load can be problematic in addition to the high intensity of like snow shoveling. But when you look at cardiac rehab data, for instance, there is a good volume and a growing volume of cardiac rehab data. So these are patients that have had a recent heart attack and they're in phase two of supervised cardiac rehab. And that high intensity interval training in that setting is safe and actually more effective in gaining fitness than moderate intensity steady state, which is traditional cardiac rehab. Um, now you wouldn't send someone with electrical instability or something like that uh, into do high intensity interval, interval training, but high, it is part of it. Now it's very specific what they mean by high intensity interval training. It's not high intensity functional training. It's not CrossFit per se. Although I think there's a huge opportunity for CrossFit methodology to enter into the cardiac rehab world because one, we've proven high intensity interval training is safe, but I think that the added benefits of what CrossFit brings to cardiac rehab would be an explosion in uh, the methodology um, and a huge benefit to, to cardiac patients. Perfect. You do the cardiac part, we'll do the rehab part. Bring it together. There you go. Imagine, imagine the 65-year-old sedentary person who had a heart attack who never got off the couch except to go to bed in the bathroom, and you bring them in, and now you give them fitness. Okay, that's cardiac rehab traditional. That's CrossFit. But now you give them community, and that's what drives a lot of success in CrossFit is you give community, and that's because there's a huge dropout rate in traditional cardiac rehabs. But when you give them community and people that – pushes them and keeps them coming back plus you teach them how to squat so get them off the couch and get off the toilet you teach them how to deadlift so they can pick the groceries up off the floor and you teach them how to do a burpee so they can you know recover from falling down or better yet not even have them fall down and that's really a huge opportunity for crossfit methodology and cardiac rehab beyond just exercise yeah. So on that same note, now when we're talking about cardiac rehab, we're talking about, I mean, a lot of cardiac rehab patients, I think, are patients who, you know, have severe disease, gone through heart transplants, things like that. How about for the average person who just has like high blood pressure or maybe high cholesterol? Is there any contraindication to them just jumping in the gym and starting to work? Well, first, let me correct your, your myth that cardiac rehab is just heart transplant patients. So you know, any people that qualify for cardiac rehab is anyone who's had a myocardial infarction, no matter how big or how small. Anyone who's had a percutaneous coronary intervention, whether it was in the setting of uh, an abnormal stress test, stable exertional angina, um, anyone who's had any kind of cardiac surgery, valve replacement, cabbage, um, all those people qualify for cardiac rehab. So there's a huge opportunity for anyone who has true cardiac disease to participate in cardiac rehab and get it 
reimbursed by Medicare or their insurance companies. For people that don't quote qualify for cardiac rehab, they still qualify for exercise, right? Everyone qualifies for exercise. From a standpoint of um, risk factors, it's a matter of making sure your risk factors are controlled. So if you have untreated high blood pressure, it's probably not the best time to start high intensity exercise. It may be a good time to back off the intensity a little bit because your, because your blood pressure is gonna go really high during higher intensity exercise and moderate exercise. And it may take medications you know, to get that under control for a while until you start to get that level of fitness back up. And then maybe we can titrate down those medications or even get you off of them. So lipids aren't a contraindication to exercise. It's all a matter of nutrition and exercise to keep them under control. Right. So there's a wide variety of, of people um, that can benefit. And obviously, we want people who have uncontrolled disease getting some supervision from a physician but just checking to see, and there's always, like you said, something that you can do. Um, you know, we can always have patients getting in, doing some walking, building up the intensity of what they're doing and scaling and things like that to start. So, yeah, when we look at, you know, no one says that you have to compete in CrossFit or run a marathon or even run a 5K to gain the benefits of fitness. Just literally getting them off the couch and starting to move um, gets you some benefit. The sweet spot seems to be about, uh, 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity. You know, that's the standard um, USPTF guidelines for, for fitness. That's the sweet spot where you gain the most bang for your buck. So that curve is really steep till you hit there. And then once you go past that, that curve continues to go. It's just not quite as steep. Um, but any amount of exercise gets you past that baseline level. Um, a lot of people get mistaken about what we call moderate intensity exercise. You know, from a, from a guideline standpoint, moderate intensity exercise is considered a brisk walk, gardening, those type of things. So when we tell people that we want them to exercise, they always think about, I got to go jog. Like, you don't have to jog to get exercise benefits. Um, you, you just got to get up and start moving. The flip side of that is the leisurely stroll with the dog is a good start but you're not going to get the most bang for your buck when the dog stops every, you know, 20 feet to do its thing. And you stop every 20 feet to do its thing. It's something, don't get me wrong. It's something to get out and move. But if you want to start getting more bang for your buck, then it's time to move a little bit more than that. Yeah. We recently spoke to Nate Jenkins about those guidelines and um, you know, sort of what you were saying about how, you know, some movement is better than nothing, but then, you have to sort of graduate from that if for true fitness beyond it's beyond just walking around the block, you know, that there's, yeah. it's better when people off the couch, but then after that, there needs to be some sort of intensity added to that. Otherwise you could be wasting a lot of time um, and also not seeing results. So interesting. We, uh, we, we don't want to raise that barrier that they have to get that point right now. Right. So as I tell my patients, I'm like, just get up and go for a walk for a while and then slowly add on to that. It's not like I expect you to hit 150 minutes or of moderate intensity exercise starting tomorrow. Let's build up to that so that there's a less of a, a barrier. And, you know, I tell them to do whatever they enjoy and mix it up because a lot of times it turns into something monotonous instead of something enjoyable or a, a, a habit for lifelong benefit. What are your thoughts about uses of medication? So things like statins, 
blood pressure medications, obviously they have their indications, but um, as someone who is, you know, involved in fitness and how, how much are you able to realistically get the, you know, speak to your patients about fitness and actual cha lifestyle changes versus medications? Because it, it, I know I find it difficult to, even though I, I believe that it's, it's very hard to get patients on board with that. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the barrier issue, I think. Uh, you know, I talk to my patients about, you know, fitness and nutrition all the time, and I get a lot of the nodding of the head. Yeah, I'm going to work on that. And then they come back six months later, and they haven't done anything beyond that. Um, but we can't let their blood pressure, particularly blood statins, a whole nother discussion. Blood pressure, we can't let that go because it's, you know, something that can be treated and clearly has a benefit. Um, so sometimes, you know, it's, it's not sometimes, a lot of times it's the medication up front and hopefully we get to the point where they're starting to exercise and their blood pressure is coming down and we can start talking about titrating some of those off. Um, and man, I, I don't know about you guys, but I get such a kick out of stopping medications. Uh, nothing makes me happier than stopping medications. Um, blood pressure medicines in particular. Um, statins are a, a bit of a different story. It's become quite controversial again. Um, statin therapies and what LDLs mean. And it, it's funny how literature will use adjectives to make you think one thing when really the data doesn't say that per se. It's just allowed uh, people to think a certain way. Um, so statins, you know, are a more difficult choice. Now, part of the discussion that gets left out of statins, particularly in the controversial side, is the difference between primary prevention, so trying to prevent that first heart attack, or, or secondary prevention. So you've already gotten to the point where you had overt cardiovascular disease, and now we're trying to prevent a second event. So the data on primary prevention, as you guys well know, isn't as strong. It's statistically significant, but it's not as strong as it is for secondary prevention. So me being a cardiologist, a lot of what I do is secondary prevention. So, you know, the majority of my patients are on statins. So we're trying to now stabilize plaque that's already been established to have been there and already been established to have ruptured. So what I, a lot of what I use statins for is plaque stabilization and trying to reduce risk of a second event. It's less about primary prevention, um, which falls more in the primary care world. Um, that, I think, is where the biggest impact of nutrition has um, to try to prevent that and exercise, try to prevent that first event. Um, we know less about that in terms of preventing the second event outside of just uh, in terms of plaque stabilization. Also, as far as... Um what you use to sort of determine, I mean, I guess this is more like you're saying more primary care focused as far as like primary prevention, but um, as far as the, the different ratios. So some people use, you know, absolute LDL versus the ratio LDL ratio to, uh, you know, the triglyceride ratio. There's different ways of yeah. sort of assessing that. What, what do you do as the expert in that? I am not a primary lipidologist, um, but I see a lot of patients that get referred to that for that. So I try to keep it simple and I look at overall risk. So what other risk factors do you have? Unfortunately, age is a risk factor. 
that we can't do anything about. Genetics is a risk factor that we can't do anything about directly. You know, we can fight back on age and, and genetics with proper nutrition and proper exercise and proper fitness. But then it's smoking history. Um, sort of what is that? Less about total cholesterol, more about HDL and LDL. I do look at triglycerides not as a primary risk factor to control, but more as an indicator of what their overall nutrition and exercise is. People that tend to have low triglycerides tend to have less sugar, less carbohydrates in their diet and better um, uh, fitness levels anyway. And I help let that help me to decide. Age plays a role. So, you know, if you're younger, we're going to let your LDL wander upwards a little bit more than if you're older with other risk factors. Um, and then there's a huge gap, right? Even using those standard risk factor markers, we have sort of this gap of, we have this sort of low risk people that we sort of understand. We have these high risk people that we understand and we have this huge gap in the middle of that quote intermediate risk category. And then we try to use other factors in there to, to help us push one way or the other. One that I personally use a lot for a lot of my patients is coronary calcium scoring um, or that traditional heart scan is what it's often advertised as, which is a pretty good marker of atherosclerotic burden. It's not diagnostic. It's not a test to diagnose blockages. It is not a test to investigate uh, chest pain in someone. That's a stress test. Um, it's a matter of taking those intermediate risk people by traditional risk factors and shrinking it down one way or the other. It could take a lot of people that says they're intermediate risk who you're setting on the fence of whether they're going to be on a statin or not, despite maybe proper nutrition and, and exercise, it can take it can push you off the fence one way or the other. In terms of uh, nutrition, it's interesting because uh, one of my medical school professors um, who is a cardiologist is very into a vegetarian and vegan diets. Um, and I think a lot of the information that I got when I was in medical school in terms of diet came from um, cardiology. Do you see, and, and I know, you know, you don't necessarily prescribe to these certain um, diets, but what are your thoughts on, on nutrition and changing that stigma in medicine? Right. So gosh, nutrition is one of the, uh, bigger controversial areas as well, right? Because there aren't, you can't properly control a nutrition study for decades. This doesn't happen. So it's all observational study. And it, like anything in medicine, if you, um, the more voices there are at the extremes, the more we actually, the less we actually know about it. So when I counsel patients, we, we try to, to keep it simple as well. And they'll ask about, oh, vegan and uh, meat-based diets and keto diets and paleo diets and um, all these other kind of diets. And, you know, I, I try to boil it down to them to make it easy. And I think if you, if you sort of line all these different diets up in a big circle and see where they intersect, they all tend to intersect right there at sugar and refined carbohydrates. And I don't care if it's vegan, paleo, uh, ketogenic, they all line up at that same spot, sugars and refined carbohydrates. So I tell my patients, if you can concentrate on eliminating the sugars, refine, eliminating the refined carbohydrates and eating real food, whether that's meat, whether that's plant-based, it, it doesn't matter as much to me. But if you can start with that, you've made a huge dent in your future risk and your own nutrition plans without getting knee deep into the controversy of everything else. 
because Lord knows that, it, you know, people are passionate one way or the other, uh, particularly in the uh, medical field right now. Yeah, I love that. And every time we have a guest on who I know has an opinion of this, I always like to ask because, you know, it's just super interesting to hear everybody's opinion. And at the end of the day, it literally exactly what you said, it all boils down to just avoid eating processed, shitty carbohydrates and you'll make a huge change, you know? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into CrossFit and sort of your kind of personal path to Yeah. CrossFit? It's kind of interesting um so i've been doing crossfit for oh gee seven and a half years now um i was doing the sort of traditional you know back and buys chest and tries at the local globo gym and you know it, it just got uh kind of old and, and and burnt out and this is when crossfit was starting to make a bigger name for itself so uh literally it came across my i don't i don't even know if i was on facebook then um it may have been an email and it was literally a groupon you, get, you remember groupon um for come you know try crossfit for four classes with an on-ramp at uh, swamp rabbit crossfit in greenville south carolina um so you know my wife and i both went to the on-ramp for four hours on saturday with uh, coach jake and coach brandon um, and then we're like, oh, you know, I've been working really hard at, you know, putting on some muscle mass. Maybe I'll just do this. I'll just dabble this in every now and then, um, with the traditional, you know, gym weightlifting stuff. And I didn't take, but about two or three weeks where I was, you know, in the, in the gym doing bicep curls and tricep press downs and isolation machines. And all I could think about is I'd rather be at the CrossFit gym than doing this. So it didn't take me long to jump sort of in and, and get into it. And then it was about, you know, learning new things. And the fact that as, you know, if I, as I get older and approach 50 now, I'm still learning the new, new things. And I'm excited to go to the gym still where, where, where I was going to the global gym. It was just like dragging me there every night to get it done. Um, so, it, it, you know, I never thought that, you know, as I approach 50, I'm learning to walk on my hands and do handstand pushups and do bar muscle ups and you know the lifting piece is still there it's you know i, I you know, the strength continues to decline a little bit with age um much to my chagrin but it but it does so that's sort of how i got into crossfit and i still love it to this day um you know i often joke that and i don't know if it's really a joke it may be really true um that when i go away at a conference pre-covid and we could go at a conference I tend to pick my hotel uh, at the conference based upon the nearest CrossFit gym, not based upon the nearest proximity to the um, uh, convention center. So I can drop in there more frequently and then get cleaned up and off of the convention center. And then the CrossFit health thing really started to take off when, um, you know, uh, Greg Glassman really started to make a big push for it. So, you know, we were all there at that first MDL one and that's, you know, the advent of, of CrossFit health, I think it's been, been great because it's really sort of pushed us as practitioners of medicine and believers in the foundations of CrossFit a little bit more forward um, into having an influence and in, in talking about it with not only our gym owners, but in the hospitals as we walk around and talk to patients and talk to colleagues. Yeah, and I can attest, I've worked out with uh, Dr. Emery on several occasions and um, he's, he's legit. I'll say that. <laughs> 
But yeah, it's huge. And it's super important to have somebody, you know, who's in, in sports cardiology, because that plays such a huge role. And there's so many misconceptions and things and concerns that people have, I mean, when they're working out. So and that's one big benefit I thought of these MDL1s is it brings people from different specialties together. So we can all talk about, you know, things that we're experts in and, you know, issues people may be having. So that's definitely um, one big, big thing that I'm, I'm missing about those right now. Yeah, I, I definitely miss those as well. The the camaraderie there and the networking and uh, was was a huge piece of those that that made them so much fun. Yeah, I concur about picking um, hotel hotels based on the nearest CrossFit gym. Definitely, have been guilty of that during conferences. <laughs> and then when there are multiple CrossFit gyms to choose from, you pick the one with the best T-shirt. Yes, and then you go and they're out of T-shirts. Oh, heaven oh, forbid that. The worst. The worst. Or you pick the one with the best looking logo, hoping they have t-shirts. That's definitely, definitely been guilty of that before. <laughs> now we're getting the pro tips. We're getting the true pro tips. <laughs> but now we can't go to conferences. They're all virtual. Yeah, that's lame. Or drop in anywhere anyway, because probably have to get an EKG before going now. <laughs> you got to like, you know, make sure you're not over the class limit size and what's your mask requirements and lifting in a mask is not that much fun. I don't know. Are you guys wearing masks when you work out? Oh yeah. I've tried about every different type of mask working out, including, you know, the ones that just come apart in your mouth completely just disgusting to inhaling, you know, cloth dripping with my own sweat. It's, it's quite the miserable experience to be honest, but <laughs> yeah, it's like wearing it a pillow on your face as you're exercising. It's, not fun. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this has been great. Michael, do you have a website yet? Are you out there? What, what are you learning the blogosphere? Where can people find you? So uh, professionally, I'm on Twitter at Michael Emery MD. Um, I post a lot about sports cardiology there, CrossFit there, um, trying to stay out of the fray of the, the, the controversy right now a little bit. Um, no personal website. We have our sports cardiology website at the Cleveland Clinic, which you can Google. It talks a lot about what we do in sports cardiology and the services we have available for the Cleveland Clinic. Um, you know, the, the advent of, um, or, excuse me, the, the positive side of COVID, if we can find some glass half full, has been the big push in telemedicine. So the benefit now is that we can do telemedicine at any state in the country. Um, so, you know, you don't necessarily have to come to our sports cardiology clinic. Um, to have an evaluation or have a, a consultation with us, which is, uh, I think, good um, because there are so few of us and there are two of us at the Cleveland Clinic that do sports cardiology, myself and Dr. Tamana Singh, um, who's also the co-director of our sports cardiology center. Awesome, guys. Check it out. Highly recommended. Uh, Dr. Emery is a pioneer in this field, really knows what he's talking about. So thanks for coming on. We love it. Yeah, it's been great. I love, I can talk about this stuff a lot, so especially when you hit the hot buttons, like the myocarditis uh, hot button there. <laughs> Hopefully um, we will be reunited in person at some time, some point soon. Some point soon. Like, There's still plans yeah. for the, the winter classic in Cleveland in 2021. We'll see how that works out. With, Fingers with crossed. Yeah, hopefully. And, 